0: Listener supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM 820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. And today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, 1 through 12, and 17 through 20. This is the sending out of the 72 disciples, and it's unique to uh, to Luke's Gospel because the things that he says about the sending of the 72 in his Gospel are directed toward the 12, and especially in the Gospel of St. Matthew, because the restrictions or the advice or the guidelines are the same to both groups uh, who are going out to, to proclaim the Gospel, to proclaim the Good News. We've been through a series of Gospels in which Jesus is is, is and will continue to um, reflect upon the urgency of the mission. And this is something, this is a dimension of Christianity which a lot of times I think that, uh, that we fail to acknowledge and in failing to acknowledge we also find it easier to neglect our duties as Christian disciples. There was throughout the Old Testament, a New Testament, a sense of the great urgency of the mission of the Lord, and that uh, that it was always oriented toward a future which which lay on the horizon, and which would come at a time that we know not, but that we presume to be sooner rather than later. We kind of are lulled into uh, into sleep, uh, into into. Um, indifference by the length of time that it's taken for that horizon to become the reality of our lives, and so in being lulled into therefore a sense of indifference, this, the the ur- urgency of the mission also suffers greatly, and uh, and gets distracted along the way. That rather than focusing on the fact of the uh, on, on the fact of the. Uh, Yet entering into the Kingdom of God and bringing as many people with us as we can, um, instead we kind of get kind of a sense of of sleepiness about the whole thing and uh, we we sense to we fail to sense the urgency of the salvation of souls. You know it's uh, I have a, a I know a, a very good priest friend of mine and a very good priest who uh, used to talk about the, uh, the salvation, he still does talk about the salvation of souls. But there was a whole contingency of people who that irritated, you know, because they, we have come now into the presumption, somehow or other, that everybody is saved. After all, why would a merciful God do as anything else? Um, and ignoring all of the realities, all of the sayings of the scriptures, all of the, even the, um, the reasonable look at the relationship of humanity to the Lord. We know, for instance, we can judge no one's eternal destiny. And that's prescribed for us is part of the belief system of the church and ratified for us in the Council of Trent. Yet at the same time, um, we we have the ability and the necessity of judging um, actions, but not hearts. And so while we can't say who is in heaven or who is in hell unless God manifests that to us, through, especially with sainthood, through the, uh, through the miracles that are performed in, in the persons, through the intercession of that person, um, and then the church sees that as a sign of divine approbation of the person's salvation, and we can proclaim it as such. Aside from that, there is no individual ability whatsoever to determine the eternal destiny of anyone. But we have to also presume that the Lord means what he says and that, therefore, that there is a necessity of hearing the word of God, converting to the word of God, and living as faithful disciples for, for entrance into the eternal kingdom. We, we, we struggle sometimes with that sense because we think, well, you know, we, we know how other people have lived their lives and we know how we have lived our own And it's interesting how many people have almost despaired of salvation, um, which is a sign actually that they probably are striving for it with their whole hearts, and which is probably therefore, while unfortunate for them, a good sign for their eternity. And that's something that Jesus brings up in this gospel as well. The fact that it's necessary to, uh, to look after salvation, not only for ourselves, but for others. There was a time and I know it's a, it's a time that today is highly criticized. And yet there was a time of the missionary activity of the church, especially in the 16th century, where there was the sense that the, the sacrament of baptism would save um, the peoples of the mission lands. And so that, it's like St. Francis Xavier in, uh, in Ceylon, um, instructing people in the Our Father and then baptizing over 300,000 of them Um, and bringing them, therefore, into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, We have to remember that life was much shorter then, too, and that we didn't have a whole lot of people living into their 80s and 90s as we do today. So the urgency was even greater because life was so precarious and uh, the end of life so pervasively early um, that we find not only Francis Xavier's zeal, being in a way, which as like I said today, is, is with all of our emphasis on, on uh, preparation and education and all of that, that we find that kind of an, an, an unfortunate kind of um, use of the sacrament. But we have to ask ourselves, is it really? For if the people are of goodwill, and if they can pray, they are Father, and if their sins have been washed away in baptism, then a short life is not necessarily a horrible burden, and most of their lives were short. The same thing with the Franciscans in the New World in Central and South America, um, that the object was to baptize as many as humanly possible. We bear the fruits of that, actually, you know, in in, in the modern church, that uh, that people with without any interior understanding of the faith, um, calling themselves Catholics, and we do that in this country as well, when really they, they aren't disciples and they, they don't know anything about the Lord Jesus Christ and they're subject to all sorts of, of superstition and all sorts of mythological existence. And that goes for the sophisticated and the elite of our country, as well as for those who live in remote areas of the southern and northern hemispheres, that, uh, that when, we, when, when we, if we were to know the Our Father, be baptized and live a virtuous life, that's one thing. But if we do so and have no idea what it means and decide to live a pagan lifestyle while calling ourselves Catholics, that's a very dangerous kind of thing. And so it's not, there is no critique of how we go about it today in the modern world or how they did it in the ancient church with the, with the long probationary periods and our RCIA um, period and all of those kinds of things that, that we find, we find great difficulty in uh, in coming to terms with what does it actually mean to be a disciple we know it means to be baptized we know it means to receive the sacraments and we're quite convinced in the modern world that it means that we have a fundamental basic knowledge of the faith the truth of who jesus christ is as god and man the the motherhood of mary and the apostolic church and uh those kind of the 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 foundation of, uh, of of Christian knowledge and Christian understanding. So let's look at the gospel then and see how that works itself out in this gospel. And it begins with the Lord appointed 72. One side comment on that. Some manuscripts say 70 and some say 72. It could be either one. Um, 70, would there are the 70 elders of Israel. 70 was the number of the translators of the Septuagint. Um, who brought the word of God into the Western languages in order for the Gentiles to come to know. And the number 72 um, corresponds with the Old Testament idea that there were 72 nations of people on the earth. And if that's what what Luke, who is interested in the evangelization of the Gentiles, That uh, if that is his purpose, then he's saying that this is a universal mission and not the mission just to the people of Israel, which it is in Matthew's gospel. It's just um, to the people of Israel. But Luke always has his eye toward the the conversion of the Gentiles. And this might well be a passage in which he does that by saying the Lord appointed 72, he appointed one for each nation of the earth. And it says, and and sent them out ahead of him in pairs to all of the towns and places he was to visit. This sending him out in pairs is an important thing also. It's It's never a good idea for a missionary, for an evangelist to be alone by themselves. They're too subject to their own frailty and they're too subject to their own vulnerabilities. That when there is a companion, then there is a greater there is a greater sense of fidelity a greater sense of the necessity a greater there is a corrective in our personal lives i know that certainly years ago when the religious women um would would visit home which was rarely but when they did they always took a companion with them so there was always two sisters who went to visit the families so that uh, one did not get drawn back into the secular life, the secular world in which their families might live. And so sending, and, and, and they developed that actually from this gospel. So he sent ahead of him in Paris to all the towns and places he himself was to visit. And so they're preparatory, they're waiting, they're there to get the people ready for the coming of the Lord, which is exactly what discipleship is today, preparing people to be ready for the coming of the Lord. At time the time and the hour we know not, not even the Son knows, but only the Father, Jesus says. And he said to them, the harvest is rich, but the laborers are few. So from the very beginning of the church, from the very beginning of the mission of the church, the evangelization mission of the church, there has been a, a dearth of, of those who respond to the call to be the primary witnesses and the primary messengers of, of the Lord Jesus, the dispenser of sacraments, the proclaimers of the word, and so forth. So the harvest is rich, certainly it is, but the laborers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers to his harvest. So as you go, pray that more will join you. And that's exactly what we do today in our prayer for vocations that we, we, we pray that more will come to join us. And he said, start off now, but remember, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. He's making very sure that the disciples know that this is not going to be without resistance and this is not going to be an easy task. And that as a matter of fact, they may suffer greatly in carrying out this, this mission. As we ourselves know that sometimes there is rejection, sometimes there is, and sometimes, you know, um, there's violence and we know that the large number of martyrs um, of the last century, they said there were more martyrs in the 20th century than in the whole story of the church up until that point. So the power and the resistance of Satan becomes even more pronounced as the world as the world grows and develops, um, as we have world communications, as we have all of those kinds of things, um, as we move as we move toward any kind of human solidarity, then the attacks of the evil one become even even more intense, and I think that we certainly are able to to see those trends within our modern society. As the faith grows primarily from the grassroots as, as far as the modern world goes, it's the same especially, one of the great examples of this, of course, is the country of France. The institutional church in France is virtually dead. But the grassroots movements of the faith in France are very vital and very alive and very pervasive throughout the whole country. So that there is kind of a, uh, a resurgence <clears throat> of the work of the Holy Spirit in a once very Catholic country, which is now very, very secular. So, and he says, and you're going out among wolves. You're going to run into opposition. You're going to run into enemies of Christ. You're going to run into the powers of darkness that are trying to thwart the mission that you're on. And to do so by throwing things into confusion and into uh, partisanship and throwing things into... uh, in, into modern political terms rather than into the biblical terms in which they were conceived and carried. And so he says, you're going to run into opposition, but carry no purse, no haversack, no sandals, salute no one on the road. Okay. What does this mean? Does this mean they're just really supposed to go barefoot with, with nothing not, and, and no money and no clothes, no anything? Um, well, it's been interpreted that way. Certainly St. Francis of Assisi interpreted it that way. And uh, it was kind of part of the impetus for the great reform movement of the, thir- of the 13th century that Francis initiated. Um, but on the other hand, it can also mean something maybe a little less, less precise and a little less literal. It means don't depend on anything else except the word of god and the presence of jesus and the holy spirit in order to carry out your mission we in our day and age are very reliant on programs and all of this kind of thing and and that's the nature that's the structure of our society that's part of evangelization today But we can never allow the fact that we have some kind of uh, structure, some kind of system, some kind of organization, some kind of whatever it is, to assist in the evangelizations of the people. We can never forget that the core of that is the faith of the ones who carry the word is the it is the interiority and the dependence of each of the of the disciples of the lord on the power and the presence of jesus christ and the holy spirit and we can never attribute whatever we are able to to accomplish with all of our organizational skills and so forth to the organizational skills themselves and to our own uh, competence and, um, and um, our own skills, that we have to know that in the heart, the missionary, the apostle, the, the disciple, um, has to have an interior relationship with the Lord. Or all of their, we have seen, how many programs have we seen be eviscerated and fail simply because the emphasis was on the program and not on Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit? Something we have to be very careful of. And then Jesus says, whatever house you go into, let your first words be peace to this house. And this idea of peace, shalom. Um, means we've seen before when Jesus uses this on the apostles in the post-resurrection appearances, that it means kind of just general well-being. It doesn't mean just peace, just holding up the V sign in church or something. Um, it um, It means instead, well-being, wholeness of life, things go well for you, all of this kind of stuff. It's a universal kind of an inclusive greeting, wishing the good welfare and the well-being of those to whom we greet that way. And he said, if a man of peace lives there, um, your peace will go and rest on him. And in other words, the person will understand the greeting, know that you bring with you uh, a fuller understanding of the goodness and and the fullness of life. Um, And if not, then it will have no impact whatsoever. It will come back to you, Um, which means that there will be no fruit whatsoever of your well-wishing to the other person. And then he says, stay in the same house, taking what food and drink they have to offer, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not move from house to house. Don't flit around, he says, that if you find a stationary place to work from, then work from there, if if they welcome you and bring you in. But if they resist you, and if they don't want anything to do with you, then don't worry about that, because you have the urgency, will push you on to the next place. And whenever you go into a town where they make you welcome, eat what is set before you. Um, Once again, St. Francis takes this very literally. But what it really means is become part of the community, integrate into the community. Cure those who are sick and say the kingdom of God is very near to you. In other words, to carry out the classical mission of of the church, which is the forgiveness of sins, which is the healing not only of the soul, but also in the scripture of the body. And, uh, and the kingdom of God is very near to you is the eschatological proclamation. It's what the Gospel of Mark begins with. It's what John the Baptist ends with. It's the transference of the prophetic mission to the apostolic mission. And in both cases, the underlying reality is that the kingdom of God is near. And when you, uh, whenever you enter a town and they do not make you welcome Go out into the streets and say, "Wipe off the very dust of your town that clings to our feet, and leave it with you." In other words, when you meet violent resistance, when you meet vile resistance, when you meet anger and rejection and so forth, don't try to figure out how to get around that. Um, just realize that they're not open, they're not responsive, and 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 don't don't waste your time. Move on to where the where you can produce greater fruit and where you can bring more people into the kingdom. If you pause, it's like St. Paul, for instance, in the Areopagus in Athens. Um, they, they, they walked away when he talked about the resurrection. So he left Athens and uh, went on to, for his mission elsewhere. Um, and it doesn't mean to be dismissive of, of everybody who doesn't agree with you. That's not what it means at all. But it means that there are certain people with whom you cannot communicate the faith. And when that happens, don't, don't spend your energy trying to overcome that which you can't overcome. Those are the kinds of victories that are won only by by prayer and fasting, as the gospel says. But yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God is very near. And I tell you that on that day it will not go as hard with Sodom and Gomorrah as with that town. In other words, when you have a community of people who resist the faith, and who angrily and vehemently and even violently sometimes resist the faith, that they're placing themselves in the same grave danger of of that Sodom and Gomorrah found themselves in in the days days of Abraham. And then then the gospel goes on, and, and the gospel says the 72 came back rejoicing Lord, they said, even the devils submit to us when we use your name. And so somehow they say even that which is evil kind of crumbles before the power of your word and the power of your proclamation and um, the power of your mission. And Jesus said, I, I, I watched Satan fall like lightning from the heaven. And he certainly is God, he certainly did see the, uh, the ultimate um, disastrous re- defeat of Lucifer and his fallen angels. And yet I have given you power to tread underfoot serpents and scorpions. Both of those being symbolic of the power of evil, of Satan. We find for certainly the snake in the book of Genesis is the voice of the evil one. And scorpions also were thrown into that category. And so the whole strength of the enemy, nothing shall ever hurt you. And and I think that, that what... We hear this, and it's the same way in the conclusion of Mark's gospel, where you should drink poison and handle snakes and so forth like that. All of it means is that the evils of this world cannot destroy your inner self, cannot destroy your soul. And, um, and yet do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice that rather that your names are written in heaven. So don't rejoice about the powers that you find that you have as, as Christians, and don't, as disciples, and don't, you know, just begin to take, to take um, joy. I know that, for instance, even in the anointing of the sick, a few times in my life, I've seen actual cures take place, and I certainly have watched them take place another in uh, in, in places like Kerry, as we know also in Lourdes and Saint Anne de Beaupre and Quebec and so forth. But <clears throat> we're not to rejoice in that, he says, because that's not us, it's not our doing. That's the doing that's the doing of, of God the Father, the Son, the Spirit, that's the doing of the Mother of God and her intercessory powers with Jesus. That's the, that's the doing of the saints, which is, again, the miracles that the saints are, are able to be attributed to the saints through their intercession. And that uh, we, we find that those kinds of healings and so forth still go on in the church, and they go on. If, if we can say, yes, we know, we know of some of them locally, then how many locales are there in the world where people locally know? Of the healing nature of the sacrament, and the healing nature of some of the great shrines of, of, and 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 so on and so forth, we 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 come to understand that's the power of God at work. And so, don't go around saying, "Gee, look what I can do." Um, instead, rejoice because if through you the Lord is working these kinds of miracles in the world, and and if through your intercession, through your prayers, through your ministry, whatever, the Lord is is is. Uh, affirming the the work that you do through the open manifestation of the healing of either soul or a body. He said, that's my job, that's my work, that's what I'm doing through you. But you yourself rejoice, not so much because you're the chosen vessel for this to take place at this particular time and place, but because that means that the Lord is pleased with you and and that your name is written in heaven, he said, and that you therefore have a place for you in the eternal kingdom. It is, uh, and so when we go back and we look at this entire gospel and we come to understand this is not just an order to 72 um, disciples in the first century, um, that this is the story, the story of the church in every age in every time and in every place and that it is a universal mission if we're to take what the symbolism of luke 72 really uh, probably is intended to infer and so what we find then in all of this is that the situation does not radically change from century to century the harvest is rich but the laborers are few how often do we talk about the priest shortage how often do we lament the decline in religious life how often do we do all those kinds of things? And yet, how much do we know the great need of modern society for more extensive ministry and more committed disciples? And then he says, then he says, you know, it's gonna be difficult. There's gonna be opposition. Well, certainly don't we know that. Um, we've seen the opposition and throughout the centuries, the opposition oftentimes has been the source of the martyrdom of the saints and then he says if someone is particularly resistant to you then 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 move on because what's happened is that they have kind of in one way made their alliance with satan they have uh, accepted the they have accepted the darkness of the world and uh, the darkness of satan's presence in the world and and you yourself if, if they don't convert when you preach to them, then, then the Lord has intended for you to move on and for you to go elsewhere. So the story is definitely the story of the church, both in the first century and in our century, and all the time in between. And perhaps we might turn in prayer to this and re-examine, too, our own selves. Do we sense the urgency? Are we convicted? that the end of time is imminent, do we really hope and do we really look forward to that horizon of eternity bursting upon the earth and the return of the Lord from the east? Is, are we really those kinds of Christians who see urgency, the urgency that drove Francis Xavier, the urgency that drove the missionaries in South and Central America, the urgency that drove the disciples, the apostles themselves into all the corners of the earth, of the known world? Yes, I mean, is that is that, part of, is that part of the perspective of our faith? And I think that maybe we should reflect upon that and hope that it is, hope that we ourselves understand that this life that we live, the Christian life that we live, is a life of urgency, the life of possibilities, the life of hope. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations and Faith are available at saintgabrielradio.com.